taking risks. Um, and, uh, and I need to confess up front, um, a very large debt of... Um, uh, debt of what? Well, I mean just a debt. Um, to, to Tim Ensor. Um, and so some of, the, um, some of the ideas, those of you who were at the men's breakfast that he did um, on risk, you'll see some of the same ideas uh, bubbling around. Um, but um, uh, they just span off lots of thoughts that flowed over um, into Ruth chapter 3. So I thought it would be good um, for those of us who didn't have a chance to hear what Tim had to say there uh, to borrow that as well. So um, why don't I pray? Uh, for our time together this evening. Uh, Father God, we thank you for all the things that you've uh, given us an opportunity to do during the day today. Um, most of all, we give you uh, thanks uh, for, um, uh, for the building of relationships with one another um, in all the midst of all the activities we've done and also the building of relationship with you um, as we have had the opportunity to reflect uh, on uh, your character uh, and uh, your good purposes. Uh, and we pray that uh, you'd continue to help us to do that uh, this evening, um, as in a while we look at Ruth uh, chapter 3 together. Uh, in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So, here we go. Um, sli- as a slightly different for, for, for the first thing. Um, just a little thinking about risk then. Okay. Now, um, here's a sort of simple definition of risk. Uh, risk exists when an event has an uncertain outcome. You, you're going you're gonna to do something, you don't know what's going to happen. Uh, therefore, it is risky. That's sort of fairly obvious, isn't it? Um, so in other words, uh, there I am having a think about whether or not I'm going to take this risk or not uh, because I'm uncertain the way that it's going to play out. Um, and, and every day, clearly, um, we choose uh, to take some risks and avoid others. Uh, here's something that I'm going to take a risk with. Ooh, no, Ooh, that looks dodgy, not going to do that. Okay? So sometimes we take the risk, sometimes we step away uh, from the risk um, and avoid it. But here's my, here's my question, which is an obvious one. How do we decide uh, whether to take a risk or play safe? On what basis uh, do we make that decision? Well, of course, there are lots of factors playing in, aren't there? Sometimes uh, the event has a really big win. Um, so, suppose um, at lunchtime today you were thinking to yourself, shall I go on the walk um, that Jeremy has so excellently advertised? And you're thinking to yourself, well, somebody I really want to get to know better is going on that walk. So I shall go on the walk, because it's a big win if I get to talk to this person um, who I want to get to know better. That's a big win for me. So, that's one factor. Sometimes the, the event that we're thinking about taking a risk on has a big win. Um, and sometimes uh, the risk that is involved is very low. It's really likely to turn out well. Um, so um, therefore, when I discover that there are in fact only two people going on Jeremy's walk, I think to myself, well, the chances of me getting the conversation with this person I really want to talk to are very high because it's just me and them. Um, so very low risk, very high win. Um, uh, and so then it's a pretty sure bet. There's a big upside. I'll risk it. I'm going to go for that one. On the other hand, um, sometimes the event that I'm thinking about taking a risk on has a really big loss. What if the only shoes I've brought with me are my brand new Versace sort of 300 pound trainers and 
the risk of ruining them in the rain and the mud is very considerable. Um, and not only is the loss huge, ruining my trainers, disaster, um, but also um, the, uh, the high chance of failure of it raining and being wet and muddy, because Jeremy's told me that it's going to be wet and muddy over my nice, nice trainers, is very high. So there's no way I'll risk that. There's a high chance of failure. The loss is huge. So no way. Stay away from walk. Okay? So get, get where we're going. Um, based on the level of risk, the value of win, or the severity of the loss, I take my decisions. Well, that's how I do it. Now, have a little bit of think for a moment. Um, what risks have you taken? Um, why, don't, why don't I just uh, have a little muse on that for a moment? And in particular, you might like to share one or two with somebody sat nearby. And here's my question. Can you remember an exciting event or high point in your life that came about because you took a risk? Now, you did something risky, and it was a magnificent experience. Or, or, and, can you remember a disaster or setback in your life that happened uh, when you decided to take a risk? Uh, one or both of those come into your head? Yeah, you just exchange some wonder stories or catastrophes with a person nearby for a moment or two.
Okay, um, I will interrupt you at that point. Now, in many ways, I am much less interested... Um, no, 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 I'm, I'm fascinated by all the stories you've just been telling each other. But I'm much less interested in um, the stories you told each other, but how easy you found it to think of one or the other. Because my suspicion is that some of you will have found it very easy to remember disasters. Um, uh, and maybe you're the kind of person who is therefore risk-averse. Because what pops into your mind is the way that terrible things happen. So be cautious. If in doubt, don't. And others of you um, will have found it very easy to remember fantastic things that happened and wonderful moments uh, that came about uh, because you did something slightly mad and daft. Um, and it was a little bit risky, but it was brilliant. Um, and maybe you're quite risk-prone or risk-keen. Um, in other words, we have different ways of seeing life, don't we? Um, on this issue of risk-taking, uh, we are rather different. Um, suppose you want to choose a holiday destination. Or suppose you want to choose a film to go and see. Uh, will you go for the, the banker, the safe, predictable, Disney? Or, or will you go to the arts picture house um, and see something that looks really weird and wacky? Um, we're, we're different, aren't we, um, on taking that kind of decision. Um, suppose you're thinking about choosing your A-level subject, uh, or choosing a new job. Um, so maybe you're taking up a new hobby, or thinking about an evening class. Will you go for something sensible, and safe, and very practical? Or will you just go a little bit wacky and unusual? Because you just fancy that risk-taking bit, and you don't quite know where it'll lead, but it's fun. Again, we vary from person to person uh, how we might do that. Um, you're going to throw a party. Who, who do you invite to come? Just the safe people? Or do you just go a little bit beyond uh, with the people that you invite? Somebody you think, oh, you know, I, I don't know them very well, but why not? Um, or uh, you're planning a holiday, and you're thinking about the people that you're going to invite to go with you on the holiday. Um, do, you, do you sort of randomly invite somebody? No, they'd never say yes. And then they did. And it was brilliant, and you had a great time. Or they'd never say yes, and they did. And it was the worst holiday you've ever had in your lives. <laughs> uh, you know, which way do you go when you take those sort of decisions? We vary um, from person to person. Um, what's your attitude, if you like, uh, to risk? Um, uh, I, I want to suggest to you that, that, that you, you could, you can maybe can think about it a bit like this. Um, that. One, one attitude to risk is kind of only the main path is safe. Um, okay, so, um, you know, this is safety. Um, and, and if you come off the main path, um, you know, that's where risk is. Yeah, something nice might happen, but oh, there's so many frightening things that might happen. So stay safe. Stay on the main path. That's the sort of way that you think. Or um, it may be... Oh, who put that there? <laughs> All that. Um, or it, it may be that um, actually the way you think is the main path is dull. This, 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 this main path is... This is the way to, to, a, to a dull, predictable life. Um, and you have to take risks in order for, for life to be good and exciting. Um, 
Because, um, you know, just staying on the main path, that, that, that doesn't excite. You've, you've got to take a risk and go and find something exciting. Or maybe uh, you take the view that um, actually it doesn't pretty much matter because just good stuff and bad stuff happens no matter what. And you have a very passive view. It doesn't really matter what you decide or which way you go. Um, do, do you recognize yourself in any of those? Um, again, maybe just talk to the person next to you. Um, does that capture to any extent one of those three? Your tendency in the way that you choose and decide in life? Oh, you're looking very puzzled now. You're looking slightly nervous. Uh, you don't have to tell the person next to you. You could, you could describe what you think is the best one, if you like. Put it one pace away from you. You don't have to moan up to actually having a view on this. But if you're brave, if you feel like taking a risk at this point, uh, you could tell people what you think you like. What sort of person are you? Okay, um, let me jump in. Um, sort of conversation you could continue for some time, but um, uh, let me interrupt it um, and ask the question that, that many of you may be asking all along, which is, what's faith got to do with all of this? Um, uh, I like this quote from, um, from Hudson Taylor, um, which I'd not come across before. Unless there's an element of risk in our exploits for God, there is no need uh, for faith. Um, Let's just think about the relationship between um, our Christian faith um, and risk. Um, it's a challenging. Uh, you remember the parable of the tenants, uh, of the talents, rather. Um, master, uh, says the man to whom one talent had been given. 
I knew that you're a hard man, harvesting where you've not sown, gathering where you've not scattered seed, so I was afraid and went out and hid your gold in the ground. See, here's what belongs to you. Remember how Jesus responds? Well, no, sorry. Remember how Jesus says that the master responds. His master replied, you wicked, lazy servant. That's slightly unnerving, isn't it? You wicked, lazy servant um, for not putting that talent uh, to use. Um, so continue that conversation for a minute. How do you think faith in Christ should affect our decision-making? Um, yeah, just I'm not going to leave you very long for this because uh, I'll try and keep to time. But um, just discuss that for a minute. How, how do you think being a Christian makes any difference to the things that we've begun to think about, about risk-taking, playing safe, taking risks? How does being a disciple of Jesus make any difference? Does it? Should, should, should it affect our temperament in one direction or the other? Um, just have, a, have a little, another little conversation with somebody next to you uh, for, a, for a moment or two.
Now, my guess is that you may, um, you may well have found that quite a tricky question to answer. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if you're thinking, oh, you know, I don't know if I've got enough to go on at this point. Um, and besides which, um, surely it's not absolute. There must be some risks that are foolish um, and other risks that represent a kind of a bold step of faith. So, you know, it's sort of confusing, isn't it? Um, how should the Christian faith uh, step into these kind of things? Well, uh, in a sense, up to now, I've just been wanting to um, kind of stir our thinking um, and get us pondering on these things. Um, but what I want to do now is step into a, um, a chapter of the Bible which involves some very dramatic risk-taking um, and do a little bit of thinking uh, about any lessons we can learn from that. Um, so if you've got a Bible, um, then uh, turn to uh, Ruth chapter 3. Um, you're following the story of Ruth so far, and I've not really been referring to it, but, but, but you've got the drift, haven't you? Um, you know, Ruth and Elimelech uh, fled Moab um, because of famine, um, went to Moab, foreign nation, um, where tragedy befell. Um, Naomi is... Sorry, did I say Ruth went there? Naomi um, left with Elimelech, her husband, um, went to Moab, um, where tragedy um, um, befell her. So Naomi's husband, Elimelech, dies. Her two sons die. Um, and she's just left with her two daughters-in-law, uh, Orpah uh, and Ruth. Um, and then the journey back home, because she's heard that there's bread again um, in Bethlehem, the house of bread. Um, and she travels home. Orpah backs off. Naomi gives her the opportunity not to go with her. Saying, you know, you, you find a husband, stay in your own country, stay in your own uh, culture, um, and Orpah stays. Um, plays safe, um, I guess. Does the sensible thing. Is reasonable. Um, Ruth, reckless, foolish, ridiculous idea. Uh, going to a foreign nation, a uh, country she's never been, um, with a bitter, grumpy mother-in-law. What a daft idea that is. Um, uh, they arrive back just as the barley harvest is beginning. Um, Ruth takes the initiative, goes out gleaning in the field, um, and in the field um, bumps into Boaz, who is the kinsman redeemer, with some sort of family tie, some sort of um, um, possibility of providing a, a kind of a redemption, this, this guardian redeemer figure that can make things okay again for the family. Probably the land has been sold that belonged to Elimelech's clan um, and therefore that Naomi had a right to, but it's probably been sold and she's got nothing to buy it back with. Um, but Boaz could step in on her behalf and buy back the land um, and things would be well again. Um, and blow me, Naomi discovers that Ruth, in the field, met Boaz. Um, fantastic. And he's showered blessings upon her. Great. Fantastic. Then we come to chapter 3. So, one day, Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi, said to her, My daughter, I must find a home for you where you will be well provided for. Now Boaz, with whose women you've worked, is a relative of ours. 
Tonight he will be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. Wash, put on perfume, get dressed in your best clothes. Then go down to the threshing floor, but don't let him know you're there until he's finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, note the place where he is lying. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down. He will tell you what to do. I will do whatever you say, Ruth answered. So she went down to the threshing floor and did everything her mother-in-law told her to do. When Boaz had finished eating and drinking and was in good spirits, he went over to lie down at the far end of the grain pile. Ruth approached quietly, uncovered his feet and lay down. In the middle of the night, something startled the man. He turned and there was a woman lying at his feet. Who are you? he asked. I am your servant Ruth, she said. Spread the corner of your garment over me, since you are a guardian redeemer of our family. The Lord bless you, my daughter, he replied. This kindness is greater than that which you showed earlier. You've not run after the younger men, whether rich or poor. And now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I will do for you all you ask. All the people of my town know that you are a woman of noble character. Although it is true that I am a guardian redeemer of our family, there is another who is more closely related than I. Stay here for the night. In the morning, if he wants to do his duty as your guardian redeemer, good, let him redeem you. But if he is not willing, as surely as the Lord lives, I will do it. Lie here until morning. So she laid his feet until morning, but got up before anyone could be recognized. And he said, no one must know that a woman came to the threshing floor. He also said, bring me the shawl you're wearing and hold it out. When she did so, he poured into it six measures of barley and placed the bundle on her. Then he went back to town. When Ruth came to her mother-in-law, Naomi asked, How did it go, my daughter? Then she told her everything Boaz had done for her and added, He gave me these six measures of barley, saying, Don't go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. Then Naomi said, Wait, my daughter, until you find out what happens, for the man will not rest until the matter is settled today. So three, um, three things I want to highlight um, uh, from this chapter. Um, uh, it's a super story, um, full of drama. Um, um, here's the first. Fear can distort our vision and stunt our expectations. Fear can distort our vision and stunt our expectations. Um, just remember for a moment all that Ruth and Naomi were facing. That they're, they're penniless, they're husbandless, which was a big thing um, in this culture, uh, to be without a man to provide you for. Uh, they were landless. Uh, they just had a lot of nothing um, at this point. Uh, they returned, in Naomi's uh, very apposite phrase, they returned empty. And then came all the excitement of chapter 2. Um, Boaz on the scene. Um, all those fields that Ruth could have gone to, and she chooses the field that happens to belong to Boaz. Well, fancy that. And of all the moments that Boaz should have chosen to arrive in his Land Rover Discovery uh, to check on the men and see what was going on, yeah, he chooses the moment when Ruth is in the field. Well, fancy that. You, you kind of see things coming together, uh, falling into place. No wonder Naomi is beside herself uh, when she hears uh, that, uh, 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 that Boaz uh, is the field. Um, uh, Boaz is the field that, the, that, that Ruth was in. 
in the face of so much misery, um, so much loss, so much despair, here finally is a glimmer of hope. But then nothing. No phone calls, no email, no text. He seemed so keen, paid her such attention. Compliments, wine, dinner, then silence. What is it with this guy? Some, I imagine, may empathize strongly <laughs> with Ruth at this point. And it's easy to see, isn't it, um, how Ruth and Naomi could have fallen into despair uh, at this moment, when all they see is discouragement, that their hopes raised and then just dashed, came to nothing. And instead of having a sense of God's hand being at work, they feel discouragement. They experience neglect. Oh, God's not doing anything after all. It's just what I thought. God's not going to take care of us. It's a false storm, thwarted hope. Clearly wasn't God's plan. Fear and doubt can, can make us think like that, can't they? Um, easy to imagine at different points over um, the last um, 10 years uh, at Christchurch, at stages where we've been trying to look and plan towards a church plant uh, on two separate occasions. would have been easy at various points to think, ah, oh, no, it's, it's coming to nothing. We just thought something was going to happen. Just look as though we're getting an opening. No. Hopes are dashed. Door closes. Possibility gone. So easy to imagine that uh, we're just wasting our time. We stop praying, we stop planning, because inside we've just given up. Or maybe it's a fear in, in regard to a relationship, a friendship. Uh, and you fear hurt again if you risk opening yourself up, making yourself vulnerable um, in a friendship. And so you step into that relationship guarded, protected, fenced off. And you know, that, know what that does. Pretty much guarantees that the relationship will go nowhere. Uh, we're defended and closed in because we've been hurt in the past. Or, or maybe it's fear in relation to evangelism. Uh, doubt that this person, my colleagues, my family, they'll ever respond. Given up hope so many times, led nothing. And so we invite them to something almost certain that they're going to say, no, thanks very much. Uh, and that means that the way that we invite them kind of almost guarantees the response. Because we have no enthusiasm. We have no confidence. We have no excitement. We're anticipating the rejection almost before it comes. Fear so easily limits ourselves to the horizons of our own capacities, our own expectations. It shrinks our vision into what we think we're capable of, what we can achieve. It stunts our expectations as a result. Fear distorts our vision, stunts our expectations of what can be done. But gloriously, marvellously, Ruth and Naomi weren't like that. It's easy to imagine how they could have been, uh, but they weren't. Uh, quite the reverse took place. 
Uh, instead, secondly, faith sets to work, uh, even in the face of our fears. Um, understand that uh, at this point, as we enter into chapter 3, time is kind of running out uh, for Ruth and Naomi. Uh, while the harvest has been going on, the possibility that um, Ruth might sort of bump into Boaz again um, and the relationship might recapture some momentum um, is still there. Um, but uh, this gleaning lark um, is definitely a temp job. Um, and pretty soon the season is going to be over um, and the opportunities for her um, to, to be in contact with Boaz um, are disappearing. Um, and it is therefore at this moment that the, the story, the narrative of Ruth takes this most extraordinary twist. Um, because even though Ruth has no husband, um, she does, as our author points out at the end of chapter 2, she does have a mother-in-law who seems to understand men. Um, which is how it is that Ruth gets this rather extraordinary crash course in bagging your man. Because <laughs> you see... Down at the threshing floor, it's party time. I mean, this is the end of the harvest. The work is finished. All of, the, all of the, the grain has been gathered, and now they're doing the threshing business, which means getting all the sort of proper stuff off and throwing away all the, um, what's that stuff called? The chaff, thank you. Chaff, mental block for a moment. Um, so, so they're doing all that sort of business. That's a happy time. It's sort of celebration time. You whoopee. Um, all the goodies are being brought in. Um, and so it's big party time. There's bread in Bethlehem. Um, and that's why Naomi is con convinced that tonight's the night. Um, so one long hot bath and slick dress and dash of Moabite musk later, <laughs> Ruth finds herself en route to the threshing floor with her, her mother-in-law's advice ringing in her ears. Don't rush it. Don't rush it. Just wait. Go slow. Wait till your man's been fed and he's finished drinking. That always gets them in a good mood. Then notice where he lies down and make your move. Uncover his feet. That'll wake him sooner or later. And hunker down to see what happens. When he finds you there, he'll tell you what to do. And you're thinking, I bet he will. Now, how do you imagine, you know, how do you imagine Ruth was as she sets out on this little mission? I mean, I would imagine she was terrified, wasn't she? You know, walking into an entirely male, I mean, we hear later on, don't we? Don't let it be known that a woman came to the threshing floor. No, 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 that's outrageous. Women don't come to the threshing floor. This is very much a sort of men's only club. Um, and here is Ruth uh, with night falling on her way to the threshing floor, doled up to the nines. I would have thought she was terrified at the prospect of what lay ahead of her. Terrified of, of all the possibilities. Yeah, if she was a what-if person, there are an awful lot of pretty disastrous what-ifs to consider at this point, aren't there? Now, it is probably, therefore, at this point, the moment at which I need to make completely clear um, that I don't think that we have here a biblical blueprint <laughs> for establishing a relationship with a member of the opposite sex. I, I don't think that you, know, you would do well to say, well, it's in the Bible. 
So if you are a parent of a teenage daughter who is having trouble getting a bloke's attention, do not go with this plan. <laughs> now, that, wouldn't just, that would not be wise, wouldn't it? If you are a teenage daughter, don't go with this plan. I, I don't think this is a blueprint for the way to go about um, uh, securing a boyfriend for yourself. But high-risk strategy as it is, and peculiar to this situation as it clearly is, astonishingly it works. Boaz's feet do reach freezing point. He wakes with a start and in the dimness detects a figure lying at his feet. Who are you? He asks, not unreasonably at that point. Now, in a moment, um, we're going to look at um, Ruth's reply to the question, uh, which is significant. Um, but uh, I mean, I've kind of made fun of the risque nature of this escapade, but um, it's here. What are we to make of it? it? It seems to me that even if this particular method um, may not be uh, one that we should copy, this particular method unique to Ruth, um, the principle may not be. Sometimes calculated risks are right. So that even though God may be sovereign, he does not intend us to be passive. And sometimes it's right to seize the initiative, to take the bull by the horns, to make things happen. You, you can think again and again of heroes of the faith in the Bible who do exactly that, who trust God and act. So, so you know, football crowds may uh, sit in the stands. I don't know why we still call them stands, even though they have to sit now. But anyway, um, sit in the crowd singing K Sarah Sarah, whatever will be, will be. Um, but, but a Christian should get on the field and play. Act. Don't be passive. Now, for sure, there are boundaries to navigate, aren't there? There must be a point when brave becomes reckless folly, when bold just becomes plain balmy. But I suspect, if we're honest, most of us, many of us, are, are far more risk-averse than we probably ought to be uh, because we're ruled by our fears far more than we are guided by our faith. I think the sovereign rule of God ought to make us risk-takers, not risk-shy. You know, perhaps in evangelism, taking the risk of inviting the person we've been thinking about inviting for months. Perhaps in Christian service, stepping into an area of ministry that we're not sure we'd really be equipped for, but we'll, we'll take the risk and see. Perhaps in a friendship where we overcome our fears and make ourselves vulnerable through our honesty uh, and uh, opens up a relationship as a result. How often we play safe, not really because we think it's wise to play safe, but because we're just terrified of looking foolish. We could uh, apply this, I think, um, to, uh, to, to the two church plants that we've been involved in. Um, neither were particularly sort of wise or obvious. You know, the first uh, to St. John's in Orchard Park, far too small. A tiny number of people began um, uh, that church plant. just looked like a daft thing to be doing, really, uh, that Chris uh, Lowe and the small number of people there could, could really make that work. Very risky thing uh, for Chris to decide to do uh, and those who went with him. 
I think the same thing about Hope Church Chesterton. There's lots that's uncertain about Hope Church Chesterton, um, set up in the way that it is, um, linked in w with uh, Andy Atkins, who's a great guy, but he's a pioneer curate tied in with St. George's. Who knows what will happen when he comes to the end of his term of curacy? We don't. Those who have gone to Hope Church Chesterton know that. They know that it's very risky. It's not so nice and neat and tidy. We haven't um, dotted all the I's and crossed all the T's and have everything safely in place. No, they've stepped out in faith. Uh, it's a risk, uh, what they've decided to do. Um, it may well be that when we get to the next church plant, um, we will need to take risks again. Uh, maybe next time the risk will be a rather different sort of risk. Maybe it'll be that the church plant is a much bigger church plant that opens up, and it'll be a large number of people who move away from Christchurch. And the risk will be, gosh, can we really manage to, to keep going at Christchurch uh, if we lose 50, 60, 70, 80, 90, 100 people uh, from our church family all in one go? Maybe that'll be the risk at that stage. Uh, but those are the kind of risks that you take for kingdom growth. Fair to say that if as believers or as churches, nothing we ever do fails, then probably we're not taking enough risks, are we? If we only ever do things that succeed, that probably isn't that we're very clever. It probably means that we're being too safe. And we're not being bold enough. So, first, fear can distort our vision, stunt our expectations. Second, faith sets to work even in the face of fear. Um, and then third, we serve a God who delivers abundant grace. Um, back to the story. Um, we, we left it with Boaz um, rubbing sleep out of his eyes and bewilderment out of his brain um, as he finds Ruth lying at his feet. Who are you? He asks. Now, notice the reply. I am your servant Ruth, she said. Spread the corner of your garment over me, since you are a guardian redeemer of our family. It is a brilliant reply. Um, I'll tell you why it's a brilliant reply. It's a brilliant reply because she is echoing and borrowing the very same words that Boaz used in speaking to her back in chapter 2. Uh, do you remember? He said, may God repay you for what you've done. May a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you've come to take refuge. You see what she does? Very clever. It's as if Boaz has said, God bless you, Ruth. And Ruth says, well, yeah, maybe, but how about you bless me, Boaz? That's what's so clever about it. Um, and it, it leads to one more instance of a repeated theme in this book of Ruth, that blessing come in unexpected ways. The appearance of Boaz in chapter 2, that was a surprise. Um, now Ruth appearing at his feet is a surprise to Boaz. Their child will be a surprise to both of them in chapter 4. And then, finally, the identity of that child will be a surprise to all of us at the very end of the book. Because do you remember? Their child turns out to be the father of Jesse, the grandfather of David, the forefather of Jesus. And suddenly, this weird little tale, complete with its slightly risque bit in chapter 3, turns out to be the family history of Jesus the Messiah. All of this was being planned and guided by the hand of God 
Now, lots of nice Jewish girls that God could have chosen to be Boaz's wife in the family line. And instead, he chooses Ruth, a Moabite widow with a grumpy mother-in-law. It's such a surprise. But in a sense, this is what he does. He blesses in unexpected ways. He brings, unexp- brings abundant but unexpected favor. And he does it so that we won't get ideas above our station and start thinking we deserve any of this blessing. It just comes as grace. It just comes as favor. It just comes as goodness to us in spite of who we are, regardless of all that we've done. And so our chapter ends with Ruth staggering home with these six measures of barley on her shoulders. The, the, the commentators have lots of puzzle trying to work out which, which, which kind of measure this could have been. Because the, the most obvious measure uh, that is being referred to here w- would mean that this would balance out at 30 kilograms of grain. Five stone in old money. Humped on her back as she staggers home. Now, c- c- can, you, can you imagine? Th- th- I mean, and this is a down payment. This is Boaz just saying, look, you know, t- t- take a little offering back um, uh, t- to your mother-in-law so she knows that I'm serious about this. Now, are we beginning to see the way that God responds, the, the grace that he pours upon these two women? Naomi says, I returned empty. How do you think she feels? She gazes down at her feet as Ruth dumps the shawl on the floor, and Naomi sees this sort of, you know, this vast amount of grain tumbled down at her feet, 30 kilograms worth. This isn't the outworking of some kinsman-redeemer law. This goes way beyond that, what Boaz is doing. And in Boaz, we're seeing a type of Christ, one who surpasses the requirements of the law, goes far beyond what the law requires, to pour abundant grace uh, upon his people. And, and, and what we need to, to grasp, just as we wrap up, is that I take it that, that Ruth, in her terror, as she made her way to a threshing floor that night, full of fear about all the ways that this could go wrong, at some level, I guess, the story doesn't tell us, so you have to guess, but it's not an unreasonable guess. I take it that at some level she was thinking to herself, I think I can trust Boaz. I think the way he treated me when we met that time in the field, I think he's an honourable man. I think I can trust him. I think it'll be okay. Now, if she had a very little bit of reason to trust Boaz, you and I have a vast swathe of reason to trust Jesus Christ. He's done more than pour 30 kilograms of grain at your feet. He shed his blood in sacrifice for you. Of course you can trust Jesus. Of course you can rely upon him. Of course you can take risks for him and know that he will care for you. Where I'd like to finish... Um, is by asking you just to spend a moment 
uh, reflecting on this issue of risk. If Ruth, through her confidence in Boaz, finds reason to act, how much more should we, confident in Christ, live with courageous faith? But where? How? Um, maybe just as we close, uh, musicians are going to come up because we're going to sing a couple of songs just to wrap our time up. Um, but just, just take a few moments in quiet before they do that. Um, and just ask yourself this question. In response to the grace that Christ has shown me, is there somewhere in my life at the moment where I should be responding with bold, risk-taking faith? Just spend a bit of time uh, thinking that through quietly. Um, maybe it's not clear. Just ask the Lord. Um, ask him to, to reveal that to you uh, in a few moments of quiet now.